0: Welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here again with my uh, good friend uh, Brian Kaplan. Uh, Brian, how are you doing?
1: Fantastic, Richard.
0: Glad to hear it. So we have a uh, so you have another book, uh, another collection of essays. This one, you know, with a with a new uh, essay, sort of leading off the whole thing. It's called "Don't Be a Feminist: Essays on uh, Genuine, genuine just- Justice." Yeah. So how do you? Um, how do, you, how do you classify this book? You had one on labor, econ. This one's not just about feminists. It's about genuine justice. But so how, how, do, how do you how do you sort of conceptualize
1: that? Right. Well, the first section is basically anti wokeness essays, but then I wanted to step back. The idea of genuine justice contrasted with social justice, so-called. Well, that section is called the social injustice movement, because I think it's a highly unjust movement. And then the other parts are related topics that I just thought fit in very well. So the next part is called Being Bacarian, where... I talk about the economics of discrimination and what it means for understanding a lot of complaints about how society is unfair. Then I've got a section on the quest to live a moral life in an immoral society such as our own, right? And And then, you know, then I have another one just called Everyday Evil, just on thinking about the ways in which the world we live is unjust, but we take it for granted and we just sort of accept it, which is pretty much the way that all human beings are, right? No matter how bad your society is, it's pretty unusual for people to sit around saying, God, this is a terrible place. I can't believe how bad people are. And yet a lot of them would have been right. So what do you do about that?
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the way I sort of saw it, and this is not the way you officially uh, break down the book. is like you have this anti-social justice, uh, thing and you have this discrimination thing sort of puts it was just sort of uh is under the same umbrella uh but then you have i think it's like so you, that can be like seen as sort of a critique of the left and then the second half could be sort of seen as a critique of the right it's a critique uh-huh. of uh, uh the uh morality or the immorality of of borders and immigration restrictions uh-huh. and things like that but you don't you don't classify it like that right you, you say uh everyday evil and uh-huh. uh you know Clean hands and the clean hands thing, I think, is, is sort of in that social justice theme. Have you ever thought about like that, like, you know, left wing moral idiocy and then right wing moral idiocy, and then just making those like the two broad topics of the book?
1: Yeah, I could do it that way. I mean, my general approach is I don't want to call anyone idiots. Well, whatever. <laughs> trying, I mean, you know what I'm, I'm saying? I'm trying, yeah, trying to get readers. I mean, a lot of what I'm doing, I, I think, in this book is trying to take. I mean, they were thinking about it this way. In the first part, I, th- I really want to establish a lot of credibility with conservative and right-wing readers so that you know, towards the later part of the book, they realize, look, I'm not your enemy. I'm not someone that is down on you. I think you're making some important mistakes, but it's not, fr- I, I, I say this from a position of appreciation and maybe we can actually make some progress.
0: Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, helpful. Um, the, uh, so yeah, let's just start with the, you know, the big one, the one, this is the only essay, uh, don't be a feminist. This is the only one that's not, um, wasn't, uh, written anywhere else. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. We're Correct.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, uh, just summarize the argument and then, you know, we'll talk about it a little bit.
1: Very good. I mean, just for background. So the essay is called don't be a feminist, a letter to my daughter. And this is the way that I frame it. I actually write it as if I'm speaking to my daughter who is now only 10. So she's not really ready for it, but, I've been thinking about this for quite a while, but realizing, hmm, I mean, one day my daughter's going to ask me about this stuff, and what am I going to tell her? And what I start off is saying, well, what does feminism even mean? Right? There are a bunch of dictionaries you can find where they just say it's the view that women should be treated as the economic, political, social equals of men. But here's the problem. We've got public opinion data on this question showing that almost all non-feminists in our society agree with that, which means this is not really a good definition. In fact, it's a definition that seems deliberately controversial in order to act like people that aren't feminists disagree with something that almost everyone agrees with. So then I step back and say, well, that's not really a good definition in the same way saying feminism is the belief that the sky is blue. It's just a terrible definition of feminism. Yeah, they believe it, but who doesn't? And I say, so what is it that really distinguishes feminists from other people? I say it is the belief that our society treats men more fairly than women, or that our society treats women less fairly than men. And at that point, I say, all right, well, that is something that we can talk about. It's something we can think about. Let's go and think about the prima facie ways that this would be true. Let's think about the prima facie ways that the opposite would be true and that our society treats men less fairly than women. And then this is where my training as an economist really comes in. I say, well, wait a second. Just the fact that two groups are treated unequally is really crummy evidence that one group is treated unfairly compared to the other. Look at me. I have no awards in basketball at all. You might say, ah, that's because I've been treated unfairly. That is a theory. But another theory is I have terrible performance in basketball. So in a world that was completely fair, I would have exactly what I have, which is nothing in that area. Uh, So then I try to go through the social science on a long list of these issues and come away saying, like, overall, there's just very little sign that women are treated less fairly than men in our society. There are few issues where it looks like men have an advantage, few issues where it looks like women have have an advantage. In the end, I say the main thing that really settles it is just decades of hyperbolic accusations about how badly men have been treating women that really don't check out. Say, look, you know, even if it started off even if two sides are treated equally well but one except that one has to deal with a lot of baseless accusations then we say the side that enters the baseless accusations being treated worse
0: so you have so you, so you have a you know, part of it is the you know this uh, pay gap stuff you know the, uh-huh. literature, yeah. the literature on on how that is you know missing missing important things. Um, then you could you could talk about how men are the victims of you know violence and uh, drug yeah. abuse and all that stuff. You could talk about natural differences between men and women. I guess the thing you know the thing that I uh, the thing that I would um, that I took away from the essay and the way I like to sort of approach these things is I think that. You know, I have a problem with feminism and feminism using uh-huh. the definition that you use, but it's not necessarily about the fact that their facts are wrong, which is, you know, uh-huh. that they, they often are, or their moral, you know, their, uh-huh. their moral arguments don't, don't, don't logically, you know, don't logically uh, cohere, they don't make sense. It's, it's more that, look, even if the, even if the feminists were right on the empirics, if there was a 20%, uh-huh. you know, wage premium pay to pay to men or, or something, uh-huh. um,
1: which uh, completely unrelated to job performance.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Let's see. Yeah. It was, it was unrelated to job. performance. let's say there was, it was just, there was pure discrimination mm-hmm. uh, going on. Society didn't treat men and women differently uh, based on this. Well, I mean, there's two, there's two things with that. First of all, we all belong to, you know, collectives that we can, you know, we can uh, identify with and we could say we're treated unfairly or, or not. So there's a you know, there's a lot of data on, uh, Tall men, you know, making more money than short men. Maybe it's discrimination, maybe it's something else. I don't know. I've never looked at the data. There's not a lot of interest in it. But you know, short men don't just walk around, or maybe they maybe they do, they see it under their breath. But it, it's it's much less prominent than than feminism, right? They're much less common to build an identity off of that, become angry about it, see that as central to their politics. So my first Response to you know why you shouldn't be a feminist is this is this you know identity sort of way of looking at the world and making these comparisons in the first place and letting it sort of drive your you know how you react to people and your uh, social and political worldview. I think that that's um, I think that that's unhealthy. Um, and then you know the the other the other problem um, you know the you know the other problem with this stuff is also sometimes people do are treated uh uh unfairly at an individual level but because of statistically true reasons there's statistical Mm -hmm. discrimination so Mm -hmm. i as a man am treated as more violent um than a woman um and it doesn't bother me because i am and maybe there's something like that where women are treated differently than Mm -hmm. men and maybe it's not fair to all women all women you know women who don't conform Mm -hmm. to the uh to the norm but like so what we just deal with it um so like you know what's what's wrong with making a case? Don't be a feminist like that. Like you shouldn't even be looking at the empirics here. There's something so there's something unhealthy about the the way that feminists frame these issues.
1: I mean, I would just start by saying there's a low hanging fruit argument of if the facts are just against them that I don't need to make the, that I don't need to make the argument. I think that's probably a good part of what's of what's motivating me or what's what what am I thinking? I do in the piece talk about. The effects of feminism on the adherent, where I say that it leads to an exaggeration of antipathy and self-pity. Antipathy for outgroups and self-pity for yourself, which I do say, regardless of the facts, is just not a constructive attitude to have. And it is a lot better to try to look at other people as potential allies and to figure out the best way to work with what you've got. Uh, I mean, also in the piece, I do talk about the societies where I think you re- women really do have a very reasonable complaint, like Saudi Arabia is one, of, one that's very obvious. I mean, as to, what would, would you go and tell Saudi women if you were talking to them totally off the record and everyone feels like they're not going to get decapitated for speaking frankly? And they say, yeah, look, I'm stuck in a country where I'm permanently under the guardianship of my dad. I disagree with him. I think that he's wrong about a lot of stuff. I can't flee the country. I can't drive. I need his permission to get a job. He won't give it to me. right? This is one, on the one hand, you say, well, don't hate all men and don't feel sorry for yourself. All right, good. But still, that's a point saying, yeah, this is a pretty screwed up system here. you got a point.
0: Yeah, yeah. They would, they certainly would have, they certainly do have a grievance there. I think there's, I guess there's two ways to be a feminist. So you say, don't be a feminist. There's being a personal feminist in your personal life. And I guess my argument would work, uh, Either, you know, it would, it would work for that one. You know, just don't, even if society treats you unfairly, don't hate all individuals and, you know, sure. don't let it control your life. Even for a Saudi woman, I'd yeah. say, you know, you're, you'd be healthier uh, psychologically if you accepted sort of the system that you're in. Um, and then there's the political question, whether or not be a political feminist. And I think you're you're sort of doing both. You're, you're, uh-huh. You think you could take the factual arguments and by uh, by convincing someone of the factual arguments they won't be a personal feminist and they won't be a political uh, feminist right um I guess the yeah you know, the problem with the, the law Fruit argument um, uh, for me is it's sort of like you know it's very you know it's very fact dependent so you can if you if you wanted to be a feminist you could, I mean, you could take these facts and you could, you know, you could, you could find some things there to, to, to to be a feminist. Like, you know, for example, I'm sure there are ways that society responds to, say, aggression in women differently from men. So, like, take it, take the alternative. Like, society is more accepting of women crying than men crying, right? And I'm sure there are traits that they're more accepting in men that are very off-putting in women. I'm sure that's true. Um, yeah. Is that something to be you know angry about, or do you just you know sort of live with these statistical realities that human nature responds to? And you know that that's it. you just have to say so that there, there's going to be unfair. Like someone could, I'm saying what I'm trying to say. I think is somebody could take your facts and depending on what they care about and how they want to balance and exactly you know what studies or what research they look to, they could come to a different conclusion, right? And then it would be at the point of saying, okay. Uh, it's just not healthy. It's just not healthy to focus on either these statistical discrimination or these, uh, you know, these broad, you know, uh, uh, these broad sort of patterns of unfairness.
1: Right. So, yeah, I mean, you could go and say, yeah, well, there's a hundred different things and on 90 of them where we've got parity, there's five where men are doing better, five where, five where women are doing better, but the five things where men are doing better are super important to me. Yeah. Or, yeah. So exactly. I'm going to live my life with antipathy and self-pity. And that's where I guess there'd be two things saying, well, look, like, you've got to just step back and look at the overall picture. Like, just saying that one hundred percent that one hundred percent of things are not to your advantage is a pretty crazy standard for claiming that you're being treated badly. But yeah, then I think you could also make your point of even if that those things were so important, it would be more productive for you to try to focus on doing the most that you can with your with your own life. Uh, but anyway, other you know, like, you know, what I would say is that. Like I said, I am thinking about talking to my daughter about this, and that is sort of my immediate imagined audience. Yeah, so if my daughter was saying, yeah, you know, like, you know, the kids at school were being really mean to me, but, you know, my reaction might you know, part of my reaction is, well, people are going to be mean, and you got to learn to get over that. Part of my reaction is, well, were they really being mean? What exactly did they do? And I think that these are both constructive avenues to go to. And then finally, of course, if it's really bad, like some kid trying to shove you down the stairs, it's like, all right, we're going to do something about this, but... Don't automatically assume the worst and just think that someone who accidentally bumped into you was trying to do you harm. And so these are all all parts of the conversation that I would have with her. And I think it's a reasonable way of thinking about anyone's complaints is, well, just like, you know, is, you know, general, is it really reasonable to think that your treatment is so bad? And then, you know, like you can, if you step back, you realize like some of the things may be bad, but there's other things that you have an advantage of. And then, you know, finally say like, even if it really were like that, what's the best way of coping with it and handling it? Right. And yeah, I think that so much of what we think of as feminism is about having a very unconstructive attitude, but also just one that is so harsh. I mean, you know, like You might step back and say, well, feminism has really worked because men are afraid of feminists and they're afraid of doing anything that would bother women because of this movement. I say, well, maybe that's going to backfire in your face and then maybe it won't, but it's just wrong to treat other people that way.
0: Uh, is it? Is ten too young to? So your your daughter? You think she's too young? Is ten? Is ten too young? Or
1: she's <laughs> too young to read? Uh, she's too young to read the essay. Not too young to talk about it yeah so, yeah. Maybe we've had a bunch of conversations with her about it, but I don't think she's got the patience to sit down and read an essay on something.
0: There must have been you know there must have been some motivation for you to to sit down and of all the things you could have said don't be a socialist, mm-hmm. don't be a black yeah. lives matter activist, don't be a nativist you know why was why was uh, what motivated you to, to write don't be a feminist
1: it's two things. So first of all, my daughter is statistically really likely to be a feminist based upon demographics right so you know, she's. Woman, you know, so yeah, woman of 10 <laughs> whatever, whatever. So she's a you know, 10 year old in a very left wing area of the country in a demo, you know, like, like in, an, in a uh, education socioeconomic class where young women would very reliably become feminists. So that's part of it. Second of all is my view that this is a very harmful doctrine for her to accept in terms of the antipathy and self-pity, but also just treating other people unjustly, you know, starting with males in her own family. Right? And then finally, I just say the arguments in favor of feminism are so flimsy that I think one good essay is what it would take to, at minimum, just give you healthy doubt for the rest of your life. And I think actually this is something where, to someone that is reasonably smart and comes to it with an open mind and doesn't hate me, I think I can actually persuade you.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you know, one thing you do, one thing you do in the uh, through the collection of essays is you sort of you make this. Um, uh, you so I think you have some very, you know, interesting more, you know, I, I think you, what, I think one thing when you do, you say when you earlier, when you said you don't like, you try to approach people from, okay, I'm your friend, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I, you know, you could sort of appeal to people that way. I think your arguments on, uh, uh immigration, I think are sort of, you know, are, are sort of ideally, uh, su- suited for that. So, um.
1: I'm glad you say that, Richard. I thought you were going to say the opposite, and like, oh man, I totally failed.
0: No, I think I think are <laughs> good. I think that I you know I I see people who are realistic being. Um, uh, I think I I think my view on immigration moved from pe- seeing people. I think partly in your your uh, a lot of your essays, I think had a, had an effect on me, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the fact that you were willing to take IQ seriously. I mean, the fact mm-hmm. that a lot of these yeah. people don't. I just think they're delusional, and these are the people who are. Talking such crazy stuff about other racial issues, I said, "Oh, well, this is just another racial issue," and they're just. And by
1: the way, that was a that was a section that my publisher wanted me to cut, and I stood my ground again. We. Oh, good book.
0: for you, good for good for you, because it's it's so it's so necessary. It, it, how about the, the how about in the uh, Open Borders book? Did they want them? Did they want you to cut the IQ stuff there too? Because no, no, all-
1: no that that is that's exactly where they wanted me to cut it. No, no, no one else is. I mean, there was isn't any other forum where they really where they. Really- I mean, I guess there's a couple of articles, but you know, it was a publisher for the book, Open Borders, where they said, look, we're not comfortable with this. We should probably just cut it. And I said, look, I can't make the, make the argument well unless I do this. And they said, OK.
0: Yeah. What are they, what are they afraid of in a situation like that? That Someone's just going to say, well, you even mentioned this bad argument? Yeah. You know. We're gonna- I
1: mean, look, I have talked to multiple people who are very left wing, who work on IQ, and they've said, my friends tell me not to work on the issue at all. Even to go and mention it dignifies it. We you know with with, uh, with attention and so you know, like you are tainted merely by discussing it, even if you disagree. So, yeah, there, there is just a bizarre level of antipathy to a pretty common sense idea, which is people vary in their intelligence.
0: Yeah, and yeah, especially if you could use it for you know to make a because so the people who. Uh, think you know who see iq is real and see that a lot of the mainstream narrative on races is, is bs uh they naturally i think fall into this sort of immigration uh restrictionist mm-hmm. camp uh but you don't and so can you explain sort of like so i you know i, I had a conversation with amy wax on one of our last mm-hmm. podcasts and yeah my-
1: very very good conversation like i mean as i said on twitter like i'm really impressed you kind of stumped her <laughs> well, but, not an easy woman to stump. No,
0: she's 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 yeah, she's obviously brilliant. Yeah, I I think um, well, I mean, there's no there's never any I mean, there's never any dialogue between like you know I, these people who are restrictionists and people who take this you know sort of uh, IQ realist uh, perspective and like people who and just the, the other people just want to shut debate down, right? So it, it's I sort think, of the, yeah. you know there's not a lot of people who straddle uh, these worlds, and it can be very interesting and new. Um, when you hear this stuff, but yeah, can you summarize the, the uh, argument of why, because yeah, the correlation between believing IQ is important and wanting to restrict immigration is probably like one, I mean, from what I see online. So can you just sort of explain how you could yeah. just be, believe in IQ, believe in I even IQ differences, and then be in favor of uh, open immigration policies?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that correlation is probably more like point three or point four, but among very smart people who are against immigration, then you see. Immigration yeah, yeah, immigration of course, of this pattern. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's there's a few things to say. I mean, one, of course, is just to take out and get a good look at a global map of IQ, and what you'll see there is that we very strictly limit immigration even from countries that have higher average IQ than us. So, um, you know, most obviously East Asia. And this is where you're like, hmm, well. Why is it that you're trying to stop immigration from other places instead of being super enthusiastic about immigration from higher IQ countries? Well, I think,
0: I think that the argument there would be just as a practical uh, uh, just as a practical reality, um, our immigration system now is and then illegal. I remember,
1: what did Amy Wax say? Amy Wax just said, hey, the white Democrats. Is, so
0: doesn't like yeah, East Asian immigration too. I, I think that's – the the opposition to illegal immigration at Third World is stronger than opposition to Amy, although she uh, – uh, that uh, first world immigration but with yeah with A B it's it's both. But oh yeah, go ahead.
1: Right. All right. So anyway, that's just one one thing worth pointing out is just look at the map. It's not true that all the areas that are poor and would likely send us a lot of immigrants are low IQ, although a bunch of them are. Right. Yeah. Second thing is just you know basic comparative advantage. It is not true that people of below average IQ are of negative value. I right. mean you know one thing to say that people with low IQ have some additional problems but saying that someone has some additional problems does not mean that their very existence is a negative. Like, yeah, Charles Manson' his existence <laughs> is a negative, but you know the janitor who works at your office—if he dropped dead, would that would you say, oh, it's a great thing for society <laughs> that <laughs> I mean, now again, I think that there are some people would say, look, it's not polite to say that it was good that he died, but yeah, it was good that he died. It's like, well, what, what was good about it exactly? What was that guy doing that was so awful? He was, you know, performing a useful function. And even right. remember that in a world what, where you, you, you everyone is of the IQ of Einstein, then who? What is the IQ of the guy who takes out the trash? It's Einstein's IQ. Yeah.
0: So one one thing I've seen a lot of people say is that they'll look at net um, uh, net tax burden. So they'll mm-hmm. say the average person who's you know making thirty thousand, you know, the average slow IQ person, you know, uh, they pay a lot more taxes than they take it. I, I don't doubt that's true. Poor people don't pay a lot of taxes, and poor people get uh, benefits. Uh, so how do you how do you respond to that?
1: Right. So, I mean, I would start by responding and saying, look, you're not wrong, right? It's true that people of higher IQ on average pay a lot more taxes, but uh, again, even from a totally fiscal point of view, does not show that they are net negative, especially because so much government spending is what economists call non-rival, which means that its cost doesn't really depend on population or doesn't depend so much. So you need to go and adjust the numbers for that. And when you do, then at least in the U.S., it does not look like the immigrants that we are getting are... Definitely not large net negatives. Uh, the National Academy of Science, Sciences says that the average immigrant we get is actually a net fiscal positive. But the deeper point, as I think you've mentioned, Richard, is that looking only at fiscal effects is missing the main thing that people do, which is produce stuff. So yeah, that you know the uh, the janitor, and it, like it may be that he actually is a a modest net consumer of government services, even after we make adjustments for non rivalry. But he also is someone who is producing valuable goods, which allows people who are of higher IQ to go and specialize in high IQ activities and then enrich the world and themselves to a greater degree. So again, this you know, this thought experiment of in a world of Einstein's, what's the IQ? The person who takes out the trash. It's an Einsteinian IQ. What a waste. What a terrible waste of talent. But now the part of the immigration IQ book that I felt very proud of and most proud of was this. Uh, How much of the lower IQ that we see in the poorest countries is actually caused by environmental effects of growing up in extreme deprivation? I have a whole book on nature versus nurture based upon first world twin adoption studies saying that very little, if any, of the adult IQ gap within rich countries can be explained by by, by just by the effects of growing up in poverty. But it's important to remember this is a very restricted sample so what would we actually see if we would go and measure the effect of severe deprivation on IQ? Uh, this is one where, as far as I can tell, there are just zero standard twin or adoption studies on this very point. But I did track down a bunch of high-quality studies of the effect of transnational adoption on IQ. And in particular, these are usually ones that look at what happens when you go from the third world to Scandinavia, where they're really good at keeping data. And, they, and, and that data also includes the age at adoption. So we can go and compare kids that are adopted into Sweden from Ethiopia when they're 10 versus 10 days. The punchline of all of this is that at minimum 40% of the IQ gap between poor and rich countries is environmental, which should not be surprising because the deprivation is just so severe. right? And essentially the method that I use since I is to say this. Assume that those kids that are adopted from the third world would have had the average IQ from their own country how much better do they wind up doing if they are adopted at birth in Sweden? And that gives us 40%. And actually that is probably an underestimate of how much gain we've got, because if you are in a third world orphanage, you're probably actually from a very poor third world family. You would have been you would have been well below your national average. So again, it could very well be that say 60 or 70% of the IQ gap that we see in poor countries really is environmental. Uh, people then flip out and say, you're supposed to say a hundred. Like, I can't honestly say a hundred, so I'm not going to say hundred. But, but again, if you care about IQ, just saying, look, you're like, we've got something that could go and wipe out half of that IQ gap, and it just consists in letting their family move to a rich country so they can grow up there. If you care about IQ, you should care about that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you're you're, you're increasing the global IQ. You're uh, increasing the global. Yeah. Oh. phenotypic IQ by um, yeah bringing people to first world countries that, that's right
1: uh, what about uh, you uh, know increasing the phenotypic IQ not the genotypic uh,
0: IQ. yeah uh, phenotypic yeah uh, the the um, uh, again, the other argument I mean the one that I struggle with a little bit more is what about what about what about crime rates I mean there are some mm-hmm. countries where in these Scandinavian countries and yeah, um, which they start out with very low crime and the immigrants you know they, they have a they have a very high crime rate uh, relative to natives yeah. this, this is a cost, is it not?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah absolutely I mean and your language is exactly re- correct relative to natives yeah so here's the here's the thing in the US, it very much looks like immigrants have lower crime rates than natives. In Europe, it looks like they got higher crime rates than natives. There's a pretty simple story, which is that Americans, on average, have really high crime rates. Europeans have really low crime rates, and immigrants are better than us, than but worse than them. But then when you look at how low severe European crime rates are, then it's reasonable to say, yeah, having double your really low crime rate just isn't that bad. It is a negative. It's totally reasonable to go and subtract it when you're thinking about what the net effect is. But again, they, but to go and to treat that as decisive is as crazy as saying that we don't want to have male babies because they've got 10 times the crime rate of female babies. Yeah. yeah we, dudes are violent compared to women but most most of us aren't going to kill anyone most of us aren't going to commit any severe violent crime to go and say let's get rid of them because they have this multiply elevated crime rate is uh, is an overreaction even though the basic point that men are violent is sound relatively speaking we're violent
0: yeah the well the yeah, I mean, I, I, when you said that, you know, if you double from a low base, that's maybe not important. I sort of think maybe maybe it is because I think there's a, sort of a threshold level where you're basically a society with no crime and then you get to be a society with some crime, right? I think there are some societies, say East Asia. Yeah, well, the crime is effectively zero. Like I think in Korea, you could probably leave your laptop uh, on the sidewalk and probably pick it up the, the next day. I mean, there's zero crime. And so, if Japan or Korea, let's say their crime rate increased by fifty percent, maybe it would be a bigger deal. Well, maybe not. Like you know, the U.S. if it increased fifty percent, it would yeah. be a better <laughs> situation. But let's say U.S. increased by the same absolute amount, mm-hmm. right? So you add that to the U.S., it doesn't it doesn't change much. Our inner cities are already you know violent you know war zones. But in Korea, it would, it would be a big deal. So, you know, maybe a Korean nationalist or a Japanese nationalist would say, we have something very special and fragile here, and we, we sort of want to preserve it.
1: Hmm. I guess I'd start by saying, I get where you're coming from, but there is a standard way that economists have of measuring how much people act care about crime. It basically consists in looking at rents in areas that are otherwise similar, but have different crime rates. And what you can see is that people all around the world do not place anything close to an infinite value upon getting crime down to zero. I mean, honestly, I will say that right here in Fairfax, Virginia, where I am working, my worry about crime is already near zero. Right? You know, like it's probably at 10 times at least what it is in Japan. But again, it's at such a rounding a re- rounding air level that I don't worry about it. I think hardly anybody does worry about it around here. To say that there'd be some immense value in getting from where we are down to nothing and it'd be worth going and upending our society in order to do that, just seems quite crazy to me. I mean, and it's also one where I just don't see... Really, anyone acting this way with their behavior. There are some ultra low crime areas of the US that you can move to if you really care about it that much. I just don't see much sign that these are areas are places where many people actually want to move to. I mean, it's totally true, people want to move from violent inner cities to suburbs. That's at a level where it matters enough. But once you're at the level of an American suburb, I just don't see that getting down to the Japanese level is all that important. Rather, I think that it's a typical symbolic issue where people claim that it that it means the world to them, even though their actions do not show that.
0: Yeah, you know what about the what about the sort of a cultural diversity argument is like? You have these nations, and they're sort of different. And you know, sometimes countries can become you know sort of similar. And maybe there's you know the, the, there's some kind of you know sort of like it's like biological diversity. You want to preserve something because there could be some challenge humanity is going to face in the long run uh, that we can't foresee right now so you want there to be a Japan, you want there to be uh, I don't know, Israel and Australia uh, Kenya and, and, so, and so on uh, does, you know, does that sort of does that uh, yeah. holy, uh we want to country
1: preserve country Kenya that? the way it is? probably <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, not that's, is maybe that sounds like, yeah. like, I mean honestly like the whole point of economic development is to reduce diversity among countries like, you're, you're losing a little bit, it's true but compared to what you're gaining, I just don't see that it's remotely worthwhile to go and preserve most 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 cultures on earth as they traditionally existed. I mean, honestly, you know, like you know, the traditional European culture of eighteen hundred is just totally gone forever. Right? There's nothing like it anywhere anywhere in the world. The European, well, there's plenty of European descendants, but they just don't live the way that they did back then. You might say, isn't that a shame? We could have preserved this in the case of a very rare scenario where it's really important to have the right kind of collar or something like that. But I would just say that this is putting way too much weight on very low risk. I mean, I had this debate with Nassim Taleb where he's just so big on refusing to assign probabilities <laughs> or use expected value theory and just say, look, we can't talk We can't talk in that way. And like, of course, we can talk in that way. There's no other reasonable way to talk. If we really talked your way, there be then, then you like couldn't eat anything because it's like, how do I know this meal isn't poisoned? Like I can't be absolutely certain so I'm not gonna eat. And so what, what does he say about that? I, I don't think he's really got an answer to it other than just to say, look, you' you're misunderstanding me. I'm like I'm not misunderstanding you. This is just a logical application of this refusal to assign probabilities, refusal to do expected value, and just say, like we got like we have to be really worried about tail risk. And it's like, look, you know, the nice thing about tail risk is that it's lower than regular risk. So we should do less about tail risk than about the equally serious high probability risks. And then there's a lot of things that are just so remote that we really should just probably not worry about them at all. Uh, even though um, you know, it could be a problem. I mean, uh, you know, in my education book, I mentioned the show Hoarders. Have you ever seen it, Richard? I've You're a pop culture guy.
0: I've seen, I've seen a few episodes, yeah.
1: Yeah, so, that's, so like like if you go and talk to a hoarder, their whole house is full of garbage, and you just ask them like, why do you have 100 milk cartons? And they, they often will just give a totally true answer. It's like, I might need it. I might need it. It's like, I guess it's possible, but what are the odds if you refuse to go and talk about the probability you need 100 milk cartons, then you are going to be in a house full of all kinds of ridiculous garbage. So... You, it's very important to think numerically, to be numerate, and to say, look, if something is a really small risk, I'm not going to assign a big symbolic value to it. I'm just going to try to calm down and realize like, it isn't just that other people don't care. You probably don't even care that much either. I mean, if you've ever looked at your Asian tourists in America, I haven't, I haven't noticed them looking afraid. It's like, oh, my God, what's going to happen to me? I'm in America. I did watch of a Swedish student who said that his fellows in Sweden warned him, watch your back at the airport. They have shootouts there all the time. <laughs> and well, that was one where he just came back and said, look, you're totally wrong and crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. And I said, "You know, I think Fia know a little better about American airports and the shootouts there than someone who has lived there for a years. Like, no, you don't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it really depends on, I think the American the American crime problem is that like we have inner cities in this country and cities you know are as an economist you of course know cities are you know there there's all kinds of uh, economic benefits to having people clustered closer together. Um, we have some sort of prime real estate in this country that's just mm-hmm. usable. Um, have you seen that recent effective? Um, uh, altruism essay, I think, was on the Less Wrong website um, about uh, the economic cost of crime and just how sort of the social cost of the US and how bad Yeah, is-
1: was it the Ben Southwood one?
0: Yeah, yeah, there was one that, and then there was a, uh, a follow up by a different guy named Sam uh, something um, on the Less Wrong website making similar, uh, similar yeah. points. Um, and yeah, I think the concentration of crime of where it is in the United States, in particular, I mean, I think has a huge effect, and it would be worth getting it down. And actually, this is a if anything, this is a case for um, immigration because this is this is the Ron Unz article: is that the immigrants move into the inner cities and they make them. Uh, Safer, and maybe those uh-huh. you know the more crime poor populations go somewhere else. Uh, but you know they don't. It's not as damaging for them not to be in the uh, in the inner city. So oh look, you have uh, you have Chicago, Chicago is you know livable. People could actually live in Chicago. People could live in uh, uh-huh. parts of Los Angeles. Um, so this is actually yeah, this is another. I think an argument for immigration. And I think it's uh, yeah we're yeah our, our, I think I, I would I, I guess I would I wouldn't poo poo the effect of uh, the social cost of crime in the U.S. just because of where it's concentrated um, in in the big cities
1: yeah meaning like like the, the u.s level looks quite bad compared to almost any other rich country so totally worth talking about uh still i would step back and say that this best measure we have is just how much extra would people pay to live in otherwise identical areas with different levels of crime and that i think is a very good way of capturing at least the feelings of the people that are personally present there now when we're going over reasons to think about crime being more costly, you know, like my main reaction to that is, okay, like this is a good essay, you make a bunch of good points, but you're doing the confirmation bias thing of only listing reasons why we are underestimating the cost of crime and you're not thinking about ways that we are overestimating. Again, from an economic point of view, the key thing to think about is, well, if someone is poor, then they attach less value to things. Right? And since crime tends to be concentrated among the poor, this is actually a reason to reduce the dollar value. A lot of people don't want to count dollar valuation, but again, ultimately I don't see any decent alternative to doing it that way. Because, you know, you'll say, look, uh, there's someone in a poor country who doesn't seem to worry a lot about cancer risk. Yeah, well, there's a good reason they don't worry much about cancer risk. They got much bigger problems. So you as an outsider are going to say that they need to go and care a lot more about lung cancer than they do when they are dealing with much more real and present dangers. So that is one. And then obviously there's also hedonic adaptation that there are some people seem to adapt to this stuff. I don't know that I would very well, but other people just don't seem to care very much. You really can see people that can totally afford to live in much lower crime areas who stay in urban areas just because they love the amenities so much. And this is one where I'm like, "Hmm, that's not what I would choose. seems Mm. strange to me, Mm. but for me to say that your evaluation of the crime is wrong and mine is right, like, well, it seems more like well, you just yeah. don't care that much, I guess. It's the,
0: it's the, the economic way of uh, sort of calculating the, the cost here is that, like, okay, so you take Chicago, for example. You have uh, the cost of, say, a house in a uh, crime rate in inner city is Chicago, and then you have one in a um, suburb somewhere, which has a much lower mm-hmm. crime rate. I guess you'd have to control for everything yeah, else.
1: You're the, you're the problem with the comparison is you're not going to see two houses in those two areas that are, that are, that are comparable. So you probably want to go and look at, say, you know, there's there's, basically the same area except one's in an Hispanic neighborhood, one's in a black neighborhood, and so the Hispanic neighborhood is way lower crime, but the physical characteristics of the home are the same. That's really where you're getting identification in the statistics.
0: Mm-hmm. But if if there, if, there, if there's like a so strong social sort of uh, pressure towards you know segregation between the the races you might just be they, they might just be independent markets right The black guy's not going to move sure. into the Hispanic neighborhood and vice versa
1: right I mean that's that's where you could go and actually get data on the racial breakdown of the of the neighborhood and so you can say, well this one is 60 40, that's 40 60 and then but you could actually match match two that are 40 60. And then say yeah but still this one for whatever reason has lower crime otherwise the physical structures seem the same um, Of course in the real world the data is gonna suck a lot more than what I'm saying yeah um, yeah so but on the you know, on the other end this is like the best that we've got it's a lot better than just someone speculating and saying oh man crime's really 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 bad yeah. <laughs> versus well how much I mean, I mean honestly like in that conversation if someone doesn't like this this work to say all right well how much would you pay to go and live in a neighborhood that where we reduce the crime down to Japanese levels? Right now, if you're living in South Central Chicago, probably a lot. (laughs) Yeah. But if you're living in Fairfax, Virginia, then it's like I don't know, like another fifty bucks a month, maybe tops. Yeah,
0: Yeah. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think you'd have. I think you'd have to pay me to live in South Side of Chicago. I mean, it's really bad. I was at the University of Chicago Law School. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, yes. Oh, yeah. You actually were there. So were you on campus or like how?
0: I uh, I live well. I uh, my parents' house. I live in the suburbs, so I would just drive there. It was about a thirty ah. minute drive, and I would drive through actually though the worst parts of the uh, some of the worst parts of the inner yeah. city. So it's not even it's not that pleasant even to drive through. You see a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of stuff, but it's, it's during the day, so it's, it's safe enough to drive. But yes, students would be afraid to to just walk a block. You know the the law school is at the very tip of the campus. Um, so if you walk south one block, you're you're right in the you're right in the ghetto. Um, and yeah, student- I, mean, I
1: I was there a couple of years ago, and I had been warned about how terrible it was. It didn't look that bad to me. I was actually pleasantly surprised. Whereas Yale, on the other hand,
0: which part Yale of the cap- what I think of
1: as the real dump. <laughs> well, <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Yaleys.
0: Yeah. Well, which part of the campus were you in?
1: I was all over. Actually, I was in the law school. I was in like the main quad. I actually was staying in a hotel, t- like twenty minute walk away. So, I mean, I did, this is when my, before my sons were applying to school and I said, right, well, we're going to stay in this hotel and we're going to walk from here to campus. And if you're too terrified to do it, then we shouldn't apply here. Mm-hmm. And we walked for 20 minutes. We're like, we're here. Where was we're, it? We never got to the part that we thought was really bad. Now, I have What's no doubt best? that a local could actually walk me to the really bad part.
0: What's, what street was this hotel on? Number, exactly. do you remember?
1: If you just go and Google it, it was wherever the Hyatt Place was, closest to University of Chicago.
0: At uh, uh, University of Chicago, so I'm going to guess that this is the north north of the campus. Um, so 52, yes, that's that's slightly yeah, that's north of the campus. So it south is gets bad. So you get north okay, here. Yeah, so we so bad. we did
1: that whole walk, and it wasn't great, but uh, yeah, it wasn't yeah. like I would could never imagine living around here.
0: Yeah, no. If you go to if you go to the south, uh, the University of Chicago also has its private security system, where they so yeah. they have a they have a person on like every block uh, at night. But um, yeah, the, the you're you're on the better side. Um, you're on the better side of the, uh, the university there um, okay yeah that's yeah that's 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 interesting I, I do think yeah I think you're I think you're I think you're right that we can't just you know sort of just be you know wild and speculative uh, with What's
1: your crime like where you are Richard
0: uh, I live outside of uh, Los Angeles I live in a very Asian area so uh, pretty okay, so wow well. yeah <laughs> it's pretty <Sure>. lovely. yeah <laughs> Uh, so yeah, the I, I, <laughs> are you scared
1: to go to Hollywood or that kind of thing? You know, no, like, I'm
0: not. I mean, I'm, I'm not. I'm not that neuro. I'm not that neurotic about that. I mean, I've yeah. got these things. I you know, I just I I, I I everything in Los Angeles seems low to me because I grew up in Chicago. I know what really uh, bad crime. <laughs> I know what a real high crime rate uh, looks like. Um, uh, but yeah, nothing. Uh, pretty much nothing in Los Angeles is is that bad. So I, I feel. You
1: know, I feel. Um, you walked out. under the bridge next to the Music Center.
0: Uh, where? Oh, in
1: Oh, that's probably, that probably the scariest place I ever saw in the United States.
0: Yeah, they have a lot of homeless encampments. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not scared of the. Yeah, the homeless. The, um, <laughs> they annoy me, but it's not. <laughs> it does. I don't. I, like, I, I
1: didn't know what was going on, but I. I was frightened.
0: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's. Um, I, I I just do. Th- I do think that the Ameri- I, I just do think that. I I don't know. Even if those estimates are off by a little bit, they had what 11, but that Ben Southland guy came up with what, like 10% of GDP. If it's, if it's 5% of GDP and it's, it's just instinctively, it's believable to me that if you know, your great cities, your biggest cities, 20, 30% of nobody wants to walk down the street in the middle of the day, that could cost you 5% of GDP completely, completely plausible to me. And it would be worth, uh, yeah, thinking about how to, how to do something about that. Um, Okay. Yeah. So I, I, other thing, I mean, I like, uh, I like one of I think one of my favorites is essays from the book. And I think I read this, uh, what it was on the blog. Um, it was called, uh, Patrick, uh, it's uh, the Patriot- Patria
1: parenti amici.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so it's basically your, your the idea is that I, I wanted, why don't, why don't you go ahead and explain it instead of me doing it.
1: Right. So it's a quote from Rigoletto. So let's see, you know, con- you kind know, con- country, family, friends, and it's, it's, it's really this question. So, like, you know, how can you love your own family but not have a strong bias in favor of fellow citizens? Right? And maybe you'll say that's just, you know, highly, you know, these, these two things are highly compatible. It's basically the same thing. Like, I love my country because I'm born in the country. I love my kids because they're born my kids. So what can we say about this? And I said, well, one thing is just that love of your kids is just much more evolutionarily deeply rooted, so it's much more of a fool's errand to try to do anything about it. Whereas on the other hand, people's sense of identity with their country is actually highly malleable. There is a famous book called Peasants into Frenchmen talking about how in 1800, hardly anyone in France thought they were French. And then they changed their minds with a bunch of public education, telling them, "Yeah, hey, we're all French here. Everyone is French. Got it? Well, are all famous. Do that long enough. Uh, so that's you know, part of just realizing this is a much more flexible thing. So it does make sense to say, well, can we go and make it a, and make it bigger, make it a more encompassing category? Then I say, but like the really the much bigger difference between loyalty to family and loyalty loyalty to country is that almost everyone will admit that favor that there are many ways which favoring your family is just morally wrong. If you are judging a Taekwondo tournament and you rule in favor of a kid because he's your kid. Almost everyone admits that's wrong, and there are, there are norms saying don't do that, we try to judge it fairly, put aside family loyalty, and just give it to kids based upon merit. And yet at the level of country, there's almost none of that. At the level of country, there is so little attention paid to, yeah, well, it is your country that did it, but maybe your country was in the wrong with this one if you really looked at the facts. So I know you're someone who cares a lot about wrong things the U.S. has done in the world, the way the U.S. will just negligently go and invade Afghanistan or Iraq. And yet most Americans just don't really care about that. I remember there's a story about the first George Bush. Uh, you might remember that there was a time when the U.S. shot down an Iranian passenger airliner over, I think, the Persian Gulf. Remember this story, Richard?
0: Uh, that sounds um, that sounds familiar. Under right, the first uh, term-
1: anyway, so, George, so basically Iran asked for, asked for an apology. And the original George Bush says, look, I Don't apologize for America, I'm not an apologize for America kind of guy, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. It's just like, become famous, shoot down an innocent passenger airliner in peacetime, and you like won't even say sorry. Like, that is a mentality that is actually very widely spread. Whereas, on the other hand, if you were to go and like you know, step on another kid's foot, and you see the parent there, it's like, hey, I like, or like your kid steps on the other kid's foot, what do you say as a parent? Like, oh, I apologize for my kid, my kid did something wrong, and then you tell your kid. Yeah, like, like, we're very sorry for this, you don't say my kid right or wrong. Have you um, so thought you know, about really what I say is that this loyalty to family is, you know, you know, is actually, re- basically, you know not only is it very deeply rooted and so pointless to try to really get rid of it, but it's also one that we've already got a very strong recognition of its limits, whereas we really have not yet contained the the, the feelings that people have of national loyalty, which are still quite out of control.
0: So there's another comparison that I've always found interesting. So you have this national loyalty, you have uh, family... Um, as as a you know as a as a justification to treat some people better than others, but then you also have you know what we call racism, um, which is treating some people sort of you know this uh, it's sort of uh, the I've seen people describe it as sort of an extended family, and this mm-hmm. is another one <coughs> where we say we we take an even harder line than we do on the family stuff. Yeah. We say <laughs> you really have to go out of your way never to do that and never to uh, treat you know treat someone differently mm-hmm.
1: on account of their at least if you're if you're white if you're yeah yeah there's a m- massive double standard of course. Yeah.
0: Of course, and so, but but that's interesting. It seems like we have a we have a very special carve out Mm -hmm. for national. It's like you know, if if you say I I I don't care about American workers any more than Chinese workers or whatever, you know that people will attack you on that ground. Nobody no you know Biden or you know no not even a left wing politician will uh, will take that uh, will take that position. And so like, we just have this carve out where it's like the the nation is like this one thing where you can just arbitrarily prefer people. And you're not only like, it's okay. It's like morally, you're morally obligated to.
1: Yeah. What's wrong with you? Yeah. It's odd. I I mean, of course, also for ancestry, as long as it's a national ancestry, then again, it's like, well, I can favor fellow Romanians and you're not the world's worst person. I mean, there is the cognitive dissonance of, yeah, but like, Romanians are all white, so it's really yes. Right? Oh sh- sh- well, what do we say about that? So
0: yeah, because yeah, it's not because it's not about white versus non-white. So if yeah. like if there's a black natu- if there's a naturalized black Romanian, right, <laughs> then it would be morally accepted. you couldn't prefer <laughs> the white Romanian over the black Romanian. Uh, <coughs> but yeah, it, it, it's yeah, it, it, I mean, can this? It's. I think if people, somebody was going to justify nationals. This is how I've heard it justified. It's like it's like the basis of society. So if you if you have if you're America if we're all Americans, um, and we start dividing ourselves according to race and say whites can favor other whites, et cetera, you know that'll tear our country apart. If we all say we're all if we say we're all Americans and you know we all we all care about each other and we love each other, we're one big happy family. Um, that's good for social harmony. I guess that's the argument. Something. Yeah, you like say that.
1: it's least good for domestic harmony. Of course. Well, what about world harmony? We <laughs> yeah, get right. way too into being—I don't know—Germans or something. And what might happen? Yeah. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Exactly. So it's it's you're right. I, so You could make the argument the opposite. It's a ne- the nation is the most dangerous one because it's it's it's, cor- it's um, it has a relationship with state power we like if yeah. you have white nationalism in the American context, you know, there's no white uh, nation state, so it would be like it would just be one thing among um, other things, um, and you know, like the white. Yeah, race – You never get to
1: the, the level left. where you might have a civil war, then yeah, you should be really worried. Yeah, uh, right. Just, um, you know, just a few losers complaining to each other. Yeah, I'm not going
0: to worry about. Yeah, that. It, yeah, exactly. So, so like, like the the white danger
1: to each other, really.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, like the white race starting a war against other races, like much lower probability of the American nation starting a, you know, a war against some, some other nation,
1: uh, obviously. Uh, so, and you if could you argue- read the Wikipedia articles for any white nationalist organization. The level of intra white nationalist violence is one to like, <laughs> like, 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 if you want to preserve, if you want to keep white people safe, don't join that group because they kill each other. Like, yeah.
0: They, you know, yeah, under they-
1: the American Nazi Party, got killed by another party member in a laundromat not far from here.
0: Yeah, yeah. Are you talking about uh, uh the uh, the guy uh, Rockwell was his name?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm blanking out Lincoln's in his name too. I'm blanking. Uh, George
0: I think it's George Lincoln, Lincoln Rockwell. Yeah, he used yeah. to he used to, he was a big performance artist. He would go in like a Nazi uniform to uh uh college. I'm gonna make sure that's his name, George Lincoln uh Rockwell. Yeah, so that that is that is common. Uh, yeah. yeah, it is George Lincoln Rockwell. Uh yeah, that that is that is common. I you know, I think what it, the you have, you have you have an essay on white nationalism too. Uh-huh. And your argument is that basically, because they are so, um, you know, it's so taboo. Even though, if, like, say, communism might have a higher, uh, yeah, like way capital. higher. Yeah,
1: yeah Twitter will kick you off for being white nationalists probably. But yeah. there's lots of little little hammer and sickle logos in Twitter profiles. No one's getting kicked off for that.
0: But your argument, and your argument is, and this would this would uh, this would uh, uh, make sense out of that idea that white nationalists are so eternally violent. It's the idea that if you. Go out of your way to accept this philosophy that everyone rejects. There's probably something wrong with you, right? Where if you do, yeah. you have to go out of your way to be evil.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, like I would be scared to be around them, <laughs> like just because they've got a bad track record. And what kind of a person would join it? Mm-hmm. But, you know, like like you know, it's like I you mean, know, start up by saying, look, intrinsically, there's nothing worse about white nationalism than black nationalism. It's just the same idea with find and replace for the name, but. If there is a kind of nationalism where there's enormous stigma against it, then generally it is going to be very odd people that are going to get into it. And that's what I say is why I judge them very negatively. Right? You know, like I said, like if you just meet a random member of the Nazi party in Germany in the mid-30s, they're probably fairly normal people, right? They're probably not planning on killing anyone. Uh, the, the, the movement is dangerous, but it would, I wouldn't have been afraid just to be in the same room with, with, with a member, whereas I would be afraid to be in the same room with a member of the American Nazi Party. It's like, what kind of a psycho joins the American Nazi Party?
0: <laughs> someone with deep convictions about, you know, what's right yeah. and wrong. You yeah, you know, someone who's it? not
1: just saying, well, this is what other people are doing. I guess I'll go with the flow. But rather, yeah, everybody hates this stuff, but I love it. I'm going to do it.
0: Yeah. So, so you um, have you. uh, So you you recently, I think, wrote an article about um, uh, how sort of you've you've come to see wokeness as more of a serious problem. Can you talk about sort of your your evolution here, and obviously it's related to the book.
1: Right. It basically starts with I discount all media scandals as being totally unrepresentative of the real world and just trying to get clicks by terrifying people. And normally, this heuristic works really well, and almost everything on the news no matter how horrifying is an ultra rare event and really shows nothing about the world. But the wokeness on the other hand was a case where it just started in university. Since I'm a university professor, I know about it. I've seen it here. I've always thought it was terrible for me, but at the same time I'd see stories and I'd be like, all right, well, this is like one tiny corner of the world where this is an issue. It's bad for me. Cause I happen to be really close to the epicenter of this junk, but it doesn't mean that normal people need to be worrying about it. And furthermore, I've longed the view that the rhetoric is just so academic; it's just so off-putting, off-putting, so full of jargon. There's a great Noam Chomsky essay saying, "Please, leftists, just drop this horrible continental philosophy; it alienates more people from our movement." And I'm like, "Yeah, good, good." Right? And so, for, you know, this is this this was my attitude for many years: of wokeness is bad for me, but it doesn't really matter very much in the real world. And then it just started maybe about eight years ago, having a growth rate of like 50% per year in the real world. And first I'm like, nah, it can't really be, it can't really be, right? But like if you have a 50% growth rate compounded over six years, then suddenly something that was a rounding error is no longer a rounding error. Uh, what really blew my mind was after the George Floyd riots, I suddenly found that all of my friends with normal non academic jobs had to do brainwashing sessions, And this is where I real and I actually was looking over their shoulders sometimes, seeing their brainwashing sessions, saying, "Look, this is the same kind of intellectually insipid person that would normally be doing training in diversity here on a university campus, but now they're torturing people in the insurance industry with this stuff. Like normal people who have like in no way chose to be part of this of, of academia, and they're still having to listen to this horrible turgid dogma." and when i saw that happening to people who had never opted into academia i just felt really sorry for them and outraged on their behalf i will say it's like it's ridiculous that normal people would have to deal with this stuff and now they are and this is not just something that's only on the news something is happening to people in real life so that was my main transformation of just realizing that it had gone from being a you know, something that was Prominent in a very tiny corner of the world is something that actually is prominent in like all, really at all levels of high skilled employment at minimum. Uh, they just managed to somehow get their growth rate up to a level that I could not imagine for people with jargon like intersectionality. That's just the kind of thing that I would think would forever bar you from having any broader audience. But somehow they pulled it off.
0: Yeah. So I mean the, the you know it's it's interesting because yeah there's this sort of this uh this stuff about you know the the sort of the uh academic sort of framing of this stuff the you know the ideas but there's also sort of this more low key kind of you know affirmative action and diversity stuff. I was looking at some uh, demographics of NASA this uh this mm-hmm, morning. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like 11% of NASA is black, like 8% is Asian. Like, wow, that's like, you guys have, don't look like any science or technology company um, in the world. And, you know, you didn't, that you didn't need like, you know, uh, white fragility, like readings in order to, uh, um, in order to get that, that's just like you know old school affirmative action. We've been doing government hiring that we've been doing since the uh, basically the 1960s or 1970s, and you know the, this stuff. It's like it's there's there's stuff is everywhere, and it's like you know it, it, I, I see it as a constant you know drag on our society, and so it's like sometimes like, you might not see that. Like you would you don't work with NASA, you wouldn't you know see that on a daily
1: basis. But it's like yeah, my father-in-law actually worked for them.
0: Okay. Did he? Did, did what was his long, opinion? Long
1: ago, but uh, you know, in in the eighties.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so it's like there's there is this you know stuff that like just this idea that you should treat people, you know, that you you have to make this numerical quotas. It's sort of like everything has to be centered around that. That's just been there for a while. Uh, but like the sort of the manifestation, the brainwashing sessions and stuff. That's like you know it, it became more strenuous in the last you know five or six years, like you say.
1: Right, and you know, I mean, but it's also true that there are many places that. Rhetorically took this stuff super seriously for decades. That only recently decided that they totally believe it. So, for example, Harvard has had affirmative action for black students for a very long time, but now they are admitting them at fifty percent above their base rate in the population.
0: Oh, really? Is that right? Yeah. By the way, I think I think this. I think this. Um, a lot. Of, I think a lot of these. Race numbers are just nonsense. I was at the Caltech graduation recently. You look at the official statistics; like Caltech is like twenty percent black or Hispanic. You you could just look at the graduated class. It, yeah, yeah. You don't see any black people. They're supposedly five to ten percent of the school. They, you know, I I don't know if this is a I don't know if this is a, a this is a real change or it's just a change in how people are identifying based on. Um, distant ancestry or they're just lying. I mean, there's no penalty. There's no detection for just uh, me or you could say we're black. And, you know, if we were uh, applying for undergrads to undergraduates today. So I wonder how much, you know, I wonder, <laughs> you're, maybe you're just selecting for, uh, you're just selecting for willingness to lie. I mean, that, that could be all you're doing here because there's no verification of the system at all.
1: Yes. I mean, my immediate reaction to that is the change was so quick in just the last couple of years, but I mean, I suppose there could be, Uh, But both changes could be going on. There could be a lot, much stronger affirmative action, but also a lot more lying. Uh, You know, so the, uh, you know, the supply of lies will uh, rise as demand for (laughs) lies. You'll move along the supply curve, uh, perhaps, although, uh, you know, to be like real textbook economy, there might even be a long run shift in response to the perception of growing opportunities. So.
0: Yeah. So the the corporate brainwashing, it's interesting you, you mentioned that. So a lot of uh, conservative uh, people will say, uh, you know, this shows the sort of the inadequacy of libertarianism. I think what you need to do is you just need to ban this stuff. You need to do some kind of, you know, DeSantis thing where you, uh, you bring you sort of whites under civil rights law and you just, you just sort of bring the hammer down on this stuff. Um, you know, what, what do you think about that?
1: Right. Well, so I mean, first thing that's pretty obvious is there's actually places that do have laws explicitly against political discrimination, such as Washington D.C. And guess what? Doesn't seem to do any good. Yeah. Well, what because about the, what about
0: more so specific people about, that are actually in charge of
1: enforcing the law? Just yeah. uh, do, do not agree. Yeah, with
0: maybe them. they're not specific enough. Maybe you need to just ban critical race theory and ban gender theory, and 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 that's that's it. Right.
1: As to like what good that would do in D.C. is pretty hard to understand. Uh, right. You know, in an area, in a, like in another area, then you know, maybe it would work. Uh, but. This was actually one of my earliest arguments with you where I said that, look, you, it is important to realize that, it, that a lot of what's going on is that is that you know, there's just way too little variety in what firms are doing for this to be just based upon supply and demand. Right? like you. It's pretty much impossible to find any corporation where they just have an ethos of colorblindness, for example, and they, and they have a lot of propaganda on the wall. Say, so be colorblind. This is a colorblind company. Don't know, think before you make an accusation against someone. It could be unfair. Right? You're not going to find any place like that. And again, as to what's going on, my story is, look, if you were the one company that was doing that, you probably would get sued into the ground. Right, So the, law, you know, so the legal climate is such that you don't want to obviously be doing less than anybody else. Uh, which I think means that the law is actually quite crucial. I mean, just think about this. If it were really true that the major corporations were governed by total woke true believers, why do they even have a legal team that tries to go and minimize the damage from the lawsuits they get for discrimination violations? It is not true that if you go and try suing Disney, they just say, Oh my God, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, let's give them $20 million. That's not what they're going to do. Instead, they are going to tell their lawyers, uh, let's fight this thing. So, like, they are not, you know, like when money is on the line, they actually are still interested in having their money. So, I think it is much better to think about the environment that we have as you know, partly there is a variety, and some people genuinely, and sincerely believe the stuff and want it. Although even there, they're not willing to pay their whole business in order to be true believers. But, but secondly, like you know, the very fact that we just see so little variety is a sign that there's a lot of fear of the law. And if we were to deregulate that. A lot of the variety that we currently don't see would no. very likely
0: come. Oh, out. I, I don't know why. If we had an argument on that, I, I agree with you. i you with know, yeah. very you know,
1: so. Basically, like, like in your original piece on why is every why is everything woke, then at least I don't, I don't think that you mentioned the law. And then I said I think the law is actually something that's important. And then you had a follow up piece where you did say exactly that. So. Yeah. Well maybe, a, maybe we agreed all along and it just wasn't obvious for the first. Well, it's
0: it's a it's a, force, it's a force amplifier because it's yes. and sometimes people bring up OPR oh, in the media. You know, a lot of times you'll find out that you know the statistics on bad diversity numbers come out through lawsuits and they mm-hmm. come out through like California has like laws where you disclose like they're trying to do something where you have to disclose how much each race and, <laughs> gender. So it's like, yeah, it's law and, it, and it's PR. It's very synerg- synergistic. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the law is yeah, important.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's one of my, uh, you know, big ideas. Um, right. Although, you know, like, like your original piece said, it is probably true that leftists are more likely to boycott a firm because they don't like their demographics than conservatives are.
0: Yeah. You know? I think that's true. I think yeah. that's that Conser-
1: certainly you know, like, you know, the conservatives could find out that Disney was super woke. And yet if their kids want to go and watch Disney movies, they'll still probably subscribe.
0: Yeah, Whereas I think as the
1: right. leftists, uh, you know, like if it were the other way around, uh, say, no, 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 our kids can't see this stuff. This is poison. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Even there, like important not to exaggerate, and like the, the 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 fanatics are the most prominent, but they are not the most prevalent.
0: Yeah. So let me ask you about you do. Um, you did uh, uh, stand up comedy recently. What what made you want to do that? I thought that I thought you were pretty funny. Um, no, thank, funny. thank you, thank
1: you, Richard. There's a few things. So you know, I'm I am a professional public speaker. And I'm always curious, well, could I do a different kind of public speaking? So I've done a bunch of different kinds, and it seems like a lot of lessons transfer. Stand-up comedy, it's quite different in a, in a bunch of ways. So that was part of what just made me wonder, could I do it? I like stand-up comedy a lot. I you know, My kids consider me funny. I like telling <laughs> jokes a lot. <laughs> so like, you know, part, you know, part of hanging out with me is I just see a lot of humor in the world. The world seems ridiculous to me in a lot of ways, and much of the joy in life just comes from appreciating this and talking about it. Uh, then, you know, like I think early in COVID, one of the things I was doing just to occupy my spare time and new bandwidth of being so lonely was I started creating a wiki of funny ideas for stand up comedy. So, I mean, I wound up having like eight pages of ideas that I collected over two years. Then what actually happened was that I was invited to be on the Comedy Seller podcast which is kind of like a Joe Rogan podcast where it's comedians who want to talk about serious issues. So it's not comedians being funny, mostly. There's a little humor, but it's mostly comedians who just want to talk about real stuff. I got invited on that. And then at the end, after we stopped filming, I started telling the owner of the club about how I had this dream of doing stand-up comedy. And I was jealous of them that they got to do it. It Seemed like it'd be really cool. And then he said, oh, well, if you want to do it, send me a reel. So, I said, all right, yeah, you know, like seriously, you really, You're like, yeah, yeah, so, you know, like you know, if it's, you know, if it's bad, then that's the end of it. If it's good, then you can perform. Come here and perform. And I said, okay. So, I like, mean, you know, I wrote it up and I shot the video and sent it to him. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's good enough for you to come perform here. So I said, all right. Yeah, um, and then you know, like, you know, the main thing that is really different between my normal public speaking and that is the memorization. I see. You've really got to memorize it because you can say two sentences that are equivalent in meaning, but one is hilarious and one is not funny at all. And so you like, when you write comedy, you need to be thinking about this. You know, real comedians would be doing a B testing a hundred times before their Netflix special. So you know, each for every part saying, I'll try it this way, try it that way. See which one gets the better audience reaction. I actually was performing at new comedy night where there's a bunch of people that are just trying out totally new material. Normally Um I mean, overall, I, I felt very happy that went on the theory. Look, it was like me and about nine professional comedians. and I was not obviously the worst person.
0: Mm. <laughs> you obviously <laughs> have a talent.
1: Yeah. You and, then, you know, obvi- you know, and then major bonus, there was an actual famous comedian, uh, Andy Haynes, who came on after me. And he immediately came up with some impromptu comedy about me that I thought was hilarious. So even if I suck, his his jokes about me are clearly funny.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so the, are, is this going to become a, i you – know, I've always sort of had that too. It's like uh, the, you know, could I do something else? So I've sort of – I've yeah. always been enamored by the idea of writing fiction, movies, TV. Never had the time for it. You know, I, I yeah. always think maybe I could do it. But there's always – yeah, I think there's – you know, sometimes people have this. Could I take my talents and do something else? Would I be, you know, as, as good at it mm-hmm. or, or, you know, decent
1: at it? Yeah, uh, I mean that's how I got started in graphic novels. I was just a fanboy and then I said, could I do one of these myself? well, I can't draw, I'm not going to learn how to do that, but could I go and write the script and do the storyboards? And that's how my book, Open Borders, got started, is I just started playing around with some software and trying to do it. And I said, eh, I think this is pretty good. If I could get an artist to draw it, then it could be really good. I'm wrapping up a second nonfiction graphic novel. And the first one was a bestseller, so I think the answer to can I do this is clearly yes, if I can get a New York Times bestseller out of it. I actually write a lot of fiction before role-playing games. So I, I've written you know, you know, like well over 100 different role-playing games that I play mostly with my kids and friends. And this always begins with an original story. right? I, I write in lots of different genres. I do horror, crime, superheroes, historical fiction, a whole time travel series that I wrote. Oh, where,
0: where, where can we find this stuff? You, you, your historical ah, novels stuff. So if you
1: go to my webpage and click on the fun section, I've got a sampling. Honestly, I have over 10 times. What's, what's your
0: update on the GMU?
1: Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, bkaplancom click uh, on the left bar, click on fun, scroll down, and you will see a bunch of things that I've written. Right now, I have written uh, well over 10 times as much stuff, but actually, I've never gotten any, I barely get any positive feedback over it, so I'm not motivated to do more. If I just got some emails from people saying, oh, I played your game, it was great, then I'd probably put up a ton more, but... Uh, where's
0: the uh where's the so fun lectures where's the where's like the the historical novels you see have a a...
1: let's see so let me let me double check so let's see we go click on let's see b kaplan fun and then scroll down to rpg resources so there i've got uh cowboy zombie cowboy martian a punctuated equilibrium which is a alien apocalypse uh, story these
0: are stories that form the basis for a role playing game exactly yeah,
1: exactly so these are all different stories about we're basically like like the the idea of a role playing game is that it's an interactive story so the players are able to change what the story is like that's a lot of the fun is there's sort of an environment that you create there is a, a something that is going to happen unless the players intervene and then good players derail the story and make something really fun happen mm. uh, so yeah so like I've got well, I have one which is basically an original uh, Lemony Snicket story. Uh, the Undesirables, that one is one of my favorites. This one, you play a bunch of mafioso in 1924, uh, trying to solve a mystery. So you're actually the like classic New York gangsters investing <laughs> in mystery. That one is fun. Uh, and then I've actually got a couple that I wrote specifically for my daughter, like, so I've got, uh, that, I, and I also made up a new system that would be easier for younger kids.
0: Well what's, so what's bottom, for your daughter?
1: Yeah, so the bottom, the, uh, the Foxtrap, this is a story about a 10-year-old girl growing uh, in Colorado in the 70s who's able to speak with animals. Okay. And she understands the speech of animals. And then, so basically the characters are the girl and everyone else plays her animal companions and they have an adventure. So I sort of think of it as like a wonderful world of Disney. Still, already transplanted to the modern day. Have
0: you ever thought about selling these? I was at a game store at the mall, and it's amazing the sophistication of these things that are that are out there. Have you ever thought about trying to trying to market these? Yeah,
1: I mean, like the amount of extra work i have to put into it to be competitive is just too high. I mean, like I, I'd be, you know, I would be happy in just sharing what I've already done. I mean, honestly, actually, another issue is there probably be fairly serious copyright issues with a lot of the stuff because I actually cast them with real photographs of real actors at different stages of their career. Um, and so for me, this is part of the fun, is it's sort of getting to be fantasy movie director. If I had an unlimited budget and a time machine, and I was casting the story, who would be in the story? And that's what you get to do as a you know, in a game. But you know, there'd probably be some issues. At least I'd have to get deal with copyright compliance, which has gotten up to obnoxiously high levels. Okay,
0: so... Brian, I think you have, we're, we're coming up on a, a hard time limit. Is, is that right? right?
1: That is right. But uh, yes, yeah. so the new book is "Don't Be a Feminist: Essays on Genuine Justice." You can get it from Amazon. Despite overwhelming inflation these days, I have kept the price at a constant nominal amount of twelve bucks for the paperback and nine ninety nine for the ebook. I think if you have an open mind, you know. So I'm picturing that your readers are probably not going to just be massively turned off by the title. I did have a lot of pushback. This is the only thing I've ever written where I had multiple friends privately staging mini interventions saying, look, you're going to destroy your career. This is career suicide. You're going to make a mess of your whole reputation if you go and publish this book. I will say that any of those people are listening, I appreciated what you did. You cared. You stuck your necks out in order to go and help me. And I never want to discourage friends from doing that and speaking their mind. I did spend about a month thinking, should I listen to them or not? In the end, I decided I want to stick with this. This is not a a title that I've picked out of anger or in any kind of fit of rage, or it is not a reflection of any sort of woke derangement syndrome. This is an essay I've been writing in my head for about 10 years. I finally got around to writing it. And the title is not meant to be in any way hostile. The title rather is meant to just accurately express the point of the essay. Which is to say, feminism is a view that is deeply false. And if you are not one yet, don't join. And if you are one, disaffiliate.
0: Yeah, I so- was I was so intrigued by this because I I got into some debates with people in your comments on uh, the mm-hmm. replies on on Twitter, um, and I, I was trying to think like you know if we take their concerns seriously, and you say what. Like what, what was the, like, I was trying to, I was asking, I was uh, debating this one, uh, I, I think woman in the, uh, in the replies that I said, you know, what kind of, you know, what, what do you think would be a good, good title? Like how could you, you know, cause it's, cause these people would say, oh, that you're arguing really not against like, you know, the, 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 you know, the uh, definition of feminism were just, you know political, social, economic equality, whatever. You're arguing against some branch of feminism. And so like ninety five percent branch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well that's true. And then so there's just the truth <laughs> aspect. But then the just this the marketing aspect. You say, don't be, you know, don't be a um, statistically illiterate, you know, feminist, don't be, or you'd say, don't be a, you know, what, what, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah. you need, you need something that sort of gets at the heart of what you're saying. And I think it's just like so difficult for that for people to, you know, it, it, it I, you know, I, I don't think this is a conscious strategy, but this thing of like, okay, feminism when we don't, we're going to strategically change the definition based on what's going on. When we want to talk up feminism, we're going to use this definition that everyone agrees with. When you criticize, uh, feminism, that's not feminism. You're being decisive by, you're divisive by calling that feminism. And so, you know, it's like, I understand the, uh, the need to, um, you know, not turn people off, um, you know, uh, uh, Needlessly, but at the same time, it's like if you play along with this, it's almost it's it's almost impossible to to say anything. I mean, because you're you're just gonna you know, and also make it you know marketable and you know interesting and punchy, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, and also I thought that I was able to convey the tone very well with the artwork on the cover. The artwork, it is not one showing me arguing with feminazis or whatever term of disparagement you want. It's a picture of me homeschooling my daughter, teaching her economics, teaching her psychology, teaching her critical thinking. If someone looks at that and just says, you monster, it's like, look, look, obviously I don't have a problem with women. I do. You know, this, this is that I, I took a special effort to go and write an essay. You know, honestly, like I can really say, like, if this essay stops my daughter from being a feminist, then I don't really care what the other effects
0: are. <laughs> it was worth it, yeah. I, I,
1: I, I love her a lot more than, uh, than, uh, than the other people that might not like it. Uh, so, yeah, like, you know, like you, this is something where, like, you know, she was on my mind very much. And I said, look, I, I, look, this is something that I feel like I've got at least a 10% chance of fixing just by writing an essay. So I'm going to stick my neck out. Of course, there's always going to be people saying, well, what will you do if she becomes one instead? It's like, yeah, I'm going to just disown her and say I'll never talk to her again now. Like, it's not like that. <laughs> it's going to be one where at least she will know where I stand. And it's going to be pretty hard to caricature me because I wrote it. Yeah. Okay. Well, Brian, I she's, she's a good girl. She's loyal. I, 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 I've got my chips bet on her.
0: Yeah I, think, yeah, I think your, your odds are not as bad as you think because, you know, genet- you know genetics is a thing, yeah. you know, political views. Yeah, are. There's,
1: there's genetics and, and also in terms of the effect of family environment. I thought about this a lot when I was homeschooling my kids, which is, well, one possibility is that parenting doesn't matter very much. Another one is that parents don't try nearly hard enough on things that they really want to get. I think that's – Yeah, think so that. like if you really want your, your kid to learn Korean – It can be done. It's just going to be a lot of work, but it's doable. It's just that within the normal range of speaking, well, do I speak five Korean words or 50? That's not going to matter. you got to go and do 50,000 if you really want to make it happen. So similarly, you know, some of my thing is look, you know, for a lot of things it's just not worth it trying to go and change your kids even if you could. But for something that really matters, like are they going to be consumed by a doctrine of antipathy and self pity? That's something where I'll say it's worth talking about it day after day, writing essays and not being not being hostile, but being friendly. Yeah, you know, saying, Look, you can talk to me about anything, whatever they tell you in school, I'm here. Let's discuss. Yeah.
0: Okay, great. Well, I encourage everyone to read it. It's a great essay. Don't be a feminist, and all the other essays are are great too. I've uh, I've read most of them over the years. But people who haven't, you know, read them, they need. They, yeah. It's it's just great. Uh, you know, the uh, mm-hmm. uh, great introduction to cap Kaplan thinking on a wide range of issues. So
1: yeah, I mean, yeah, just you know, the, the convenience factor of having me curate the to- the five percent best essays, I think, is really high because the number of people are just going to go back and read an entire seventeen years of a blog.
0: Yeah. Too much yeah so get That's the book really and then the also yeah so get the books and then also subscribe to the podcast subscribe to the uh substack so you don't yep. miss anything in the future and uh yeah next book we'll we'll have you on again brian
1: great time right, all right awesome all right have a great day richard see you later